It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. The following is a discussion recorded on Saturday, August 12th, 2023, at the 4th Another Carolina Anarchist Book Fair in so-called Asheville, North Carolina. More recordings can be found at acabookfair.noblogs.org. Jonina Abron Irvin and Lorenzo Camboa Irvin are two anarchist ex-Black Panthers. Between them, they have 70 years of political activity spanning lives that have included everything from teaching Revolutionary Community School to hijacking a plane and taking it to Cuba. Both are now involved in the Black Autonomy Network of Community Organizations. They're joined in this conversation by author and organizer William C. Anderson. Lorenzo Camboa Urban, Janina Urban, in discussion with William Anderson. Um, I was saying, you know, yesterday when I introduced Shin and that um, one of the things I think that's really exciting for this book fair is that we're having people from different uh, generations coming and sharing information and resources. And I think that's one of the good things that book fairs can do. And I think it's something we really need to do. Um, and this uh, panel really embodies that. And you know, it's also connected to the, to the podcast that they do, the Black Economy podcast, which you can get uh, you know, on any place where you get podcasts. Um, and just the work that they're all doing together is really, really um, cool. And introducing new people to the work that they did you know, decades ago. Um, so, yeah, let me, I'm going to pass it to William to introduce Lorenzo and Janina, and thank you everyone for coming out. Black Panther Party, 
and a living revolutionary. So can we just give him a round of applause? Alright, 
You know, after years and years and years of hearing so-called debates by uh, lefts, whatever party, whatever persuasion, whatever it may be, by what fascism is, uh, I've concluded that fascism is capitalism. It's a stage of capitalism. It's the hard armor that's meant to protect the capitalist state in times of crisis. And uh, as for the formal case, we're living in a fascist regime right now, whether we realize it or not. We got a concentration camp system. We got the largest concentration camp system in the world right now uh, in the United States. And uh, the United States has got the largest prison system of any country in world history. Because I was the thing, oh, it's not Germany or, or so-called communist China or somewhere. It's the United States that has got the largest prison population in the world and in world history. In fact, no combination of these regimes have the numbers that the United States has right now. So the counter-revolution is already an incoming and uh, people are being shot and killed in the streets right now uh, by police. And since they started the uh, racial profile, they started racial profile. And since they started paramilitary policing, all of which started around 1980, that's a significant Day 1980. And I'm not giving you my statistics or my opinion. Uh, it, it actually comes from researchers that have pointed out since 1980 to up to the first quote uh, was up to 2018 and then 2018 2023. 35,000 people killed by police in the United States. 35,000. And uh, we don't know that these are even all of the statistics because only 13% of police forces give quotes as to how many people they've actually used deadly force. And a large proportion of those people who shot and killed were stopped, beat, beat to death, or shot in the head, or whatever, choked to death. A lot of those people are black or are peoples of color. Or and all of them were poor and working class. You know. They don't kill no billionaires or millionaires. They don't even stop them if they got limousines going down the road. So it, it's poor and working people. And all of this is related to state power. Um, I think that my experience in dealing with a lot of anarchists, particularly, but also radical period, this whole idea that the, that the state power is not is insignificant and is in fact the the street punks, the fascist street punks, or the Ku Klux Klan, or whomever, what what over the historical moments I'm talking about, that the forces in the street were the most dangerous forces to deal with. Well, you can fight those people, you can defeat those people. But the people in power who have the ability to summon the army, 
We have the ability to put everybody in jail. We have the ability to use deadly force under certain circumstances. Those people are the ones and the bankers and those behind them, those elements of the state, the economic state, those elements, they are the ones that they protect the state. They give money so that the state can keep running, so that the state can keep killing, so that the state can hire police. This country has more police than the way in the world. And uh, they talk about dictatorships. You're living in a dictatorship. It's just that they posture as though it's a democratic dictatorship. A democratic dictatorship. But make no mistake, you're living in a, a dictatorship. So, in answer, you know, to that, and I'm going to make but in answer to that, we're already living in circumstances. And anyway, else in the world, people would know they are in a dictatorship. They go to great pains to make you think that you're not a dictatorship, that you're in a democratic state, and so forth and so on. But people are dying every day from police terrorism. People are dying every day from, they can't get enough food in the United States. People are starving to death. So, I mean, it's important to, to get a grasp on that. And then you can understand who to fight, who to fight, who, who has power. I mean, it isn't just a question of some punk in the street uh, uh, with a Nazi city. You know, it's not a question of that. Those people don't run anything. And as I said, you might be able to beat them, although now I don't even know that since they've been well organized by Trump and his forces. But question of the state power. That is the issue you need to understand when you talk about fascism. Not some dreamy-eyed stuff about some somebody in the street going to beat up some punch-drunk Nazis and all that stuff. I've been arguing against that for years. People just don't want to get it. Uh, our lives are in danger as a result of fascism. Our lives are in danger. I mean, we're at a stage where if they take control of the state, or, or even if they don't, uh, we're going to be fighting in this country just to stay alive. Um, and I don't say that to some kind of alarmist vision, some propaganda. It's, it's just a fact. You know, they are organizing, they are already got long rules going around the all over the country. They've already got that happen. And so you can expect that that will be increased. Let me just say this thing about cops. I said, what is cops? What is cops? What does that mean? It means that they're reaching a stage, a second stage of paramilitary policing, where the police are going to even have power commensurate with the police, I mean, with the uh, military. And they will wipe out whole neighborhoods, wipe out a whole community. You know, they've been shooting, you know, individuals, but now they're in a position to wipe out whole communities. So, you know, it's important to understand that. It's important to understand that. That helps us to build an oppositional movement. We need to build a mass oppositional movement. And it can't just be limited to uh, nonviolence alone. This nonviolence has now become a political tool of the state. 
The state is using nonviolence in fact to overthrow governments all over the world. But we're in a hell of a fix right now. And it's more or less in it. <laughs> Uh, as William pointed out, um, I was I was in the Black Panther Party. I was in the Black Panther Party for almost um, ten years, and um, the Black Panther Party uh, fairly early on had the position that capitalism was fascism, and the Black Panther Party talks about uh, the problem with fascism, you know, in this country. A lot of times, black opposition to fascism sort of gets ignored or forgotten about. And, you know, black people have been fighting fascism since, you know, the early, early part of the 20th century. One person that comes to mind is uh, Harry Hagenwood, who's a, a, a famous uh, member of the, who's, who's black, who's a member of the Communist Party USA in Alabama, a labor leader. You know, he was fighting against it. He was a grown man, I think, by the time of World War, World War One, although we didn't have Hitler and Mussolini yet, they were soon to come. By the time we get to uh, the middle of the 20th century, uh, we have, you know, we have the, the Klan is rising again in this country, uh, trying to prevent black people from getting uh, civil rights. Uh, I know Linda was having a conversation with somebody today. Uh, you know, at one point, uh, in, in the I guess the 20s and the 30s, the Klan, uh, they had leaders who were mayors of you know, different cities and who were also uh, governors of different states uh, because they were trying to you know, stop black people from advancing in terms of their civil rights. Then we get to, you know, after World War II, um, we get to an organization I want to mention that was very influential on the forming of the Black Panther Party. And uh, it was called the Armed Black Guard. And started right here in North Carolina, okay? In Monroe, North Carolina. Uh, by Robert F. Williams, who at the time in the early 50s was president of the Monroe, North Carolina chapter of the NAACP. He and his wife, Mabel, they were leaders of the chapter. And they were in a situation where they were constantly being harassed by the Klan, right? And, you know, they got tired of it. So uh, Robert Williams actually took out a, uh, I guess back in those days they called it a charter or whatever, from the National Rifle Association. And he himself and a lot of the other black men who were in the Monroe, North Carolina, NAACP back in the 50s, they were veterans of World War II. So they knew how to shoot, right? Mabel Williams, obviously being female, was not armed to fight in that war, but she grew up with a lot of brothers, and she learned how to shoot from her father and her brothers. So the Monroe North Carolina chapter formed what they called the Black Armed Guard. And they armed themselves. This was self-defense. You can read more about, the, about it in the, the book. It's called uh, Negroes with Guns. Negroes with Guns by Robert F. Williams, from right out here in North Carolina. It was published, I think, the first time in 61 or 62, 1961 or 62. But anyway, the next time that the Klan thought about trying to harass uh, black people, whether they were in the NAACP or they were going to have a civil rights march, 
Um, the armed black guard, guard uh, they were prepared. They had guns. The clan started shooting. And the armed black guard shot back. All right? This was armed self-defense. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know about this history. And I was thinking about it. So we're right here in North Carolina when this got started. And this group had a, a lot of influence on Huey Newton and Bobby Seale when they started the Black Panther Party uh, in 1966. Uh, they had armed patrols of police, community patrols of the police. Um, that was one of the things that they thought needed to be done. In Oakland, California, you may not have had the Klan in the same degree that you had in North Carolina, but you had a lot of white cops in Oakland, California who were from the South. And many of them were racist, and they, they came to California and they brought their racism with them. So black people were getting harassed and killed on the streets of Oakland which is one of the things that led, uh, you know, you, you and Bobby Seale to start these armed patrols of the police, okay? So, fascism and black people in this country is nothing new. But I just want to point out that a lot of times it gets ignored. People don't know about it. They don't know about the history. And right now, uh, you know, people of color, as Elizabeth said, we are bearing the blunt of fascism in this country right now. Uh, you know, for myself, uh, I'm 75 years old. I was, what, uh, 23, 24, whatever, I don't know, when Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973, okay? So, you know, and young women like me back then, I was just telling William, we were excited about Roe v. Wade because we thought, well, you got pregnant, and you didn't want to have a baby, you had a recourse. So here I am now, 50 some 50 years later, and I'm seeing the whole thing, you know, go down the drain. The Supreme Court has destroyed it, okay? So we're going to have to, you know, I know we were speaking last night about Jane, Jane and the whole, you know, fight against the uh, abortion, uh, women's rights to have an abortion before the Supreme Court decision. So. Jane never died, I don't think, and Jane's going to be coming back. Um, when I was in graduate school back in the 70s, I helped start a black studies program at the Black Committee at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. So for what are we having now? We have that fool down in Florida, DeSantis, who doesn't want black people to learn anything about their history, and who wants to tell a lie about how black people benefited from slavery, okay? And I think about all the work that a lot of us did to get black studies going. But now we see they're trying to destroy that. So for someone like me, an elder like me, I'm seeing things that had, we had fought for and we had won. Uh, it's just gone. It's gone. It's gone. Now, we're going to have to fight, but it's really something to be in that position to tell me, you know, that you fought for for years and benefited you, and now it's being destroyed. But if you live long enough, I guess that's what happens. You can see those things destroyed. Uh, William told me a story of a friend of his who's 100 years old, a black man who talks about, he says, he really feels for young people in the United States right now because uh, we are living through terrible times right now, you know, very terrible times. And as Renzo said, uh, you know, uh, fascism is here. It's here. The question is us organizing, uh, 
to fight to stop it. And for someone like me, uh, who's lived through all, a lot of different stuff and seen so much good done, um, you know, on one hand, I'm eager to fight and do what I can. I can't march five miles like I used to, but you know, I do what I can. Uh, because I, I, I don't want to see us go back, back in time, you know. So on one hand, I'm angry and I want to fight. On the other hand, there's part of me that's grieving. I'm grieving over what is being destroyed right now. I can't let my grief get in the way of me uh, fighting. But, uh, you know, that's how I'm looking at it uh, from the viewpoint of an elder. And I'll shut up now. There's a lot of a lot of different threads. I'm gonna to try to connect a few things because I kept hearing stuff I wanted to go to. I'm gonna to try to connect a few pieces here from what you said. Um, <clears throat> firstly, the the friend of mine who you were mentioning that said that about how they how he felt for people during this time is a um, a pivotal figure from Guyana. His name is UC Guyana. And uh, his book is here at the Google table on our authority table, uh, The Box Not Strike the Old Politics. But you see, Quiana was an elder of Walter Rodney and uh, his senior. And uh, he's, he's 98 years old now. We were talking one day. That was when he said to me, he said, you know, these are some of the worst times I've ever seen in my life. And it struck me that somebody that's almost a century old said to me, like, no, y'all are dealing with some of the worst stuff I've ever seen. And I think that that's really significant um, in talking about um, this this moment. And one of the pieces that you brought up, Janina, I wanted to go to that and I want to ask you something too, Lorenzo, right after that. Um, you brought up the, the things that are transpiring in the state of Florida and that are happening with Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor there, who is very persistent about proving that he can be um, one of the most effective right-wing politicians in this country. And the attacks on education and on black history and um, on queer people and on trans people, the things that are happening in Florida are significant because of the fact that he is really showing that he can utilize his governments to uh, undermine all of these things that people have fought for, as you mentioned. So, you know, you mentioned KKK mayors, and like now we have someone like Ron DeSantis in Florida, who's a uh, who's governor. Can you tell me the significance of education in this discussion? Because a lot of times when we talk about anti-fascism, when we talk about fighting fascism, we don't necessarily have this conversation um, with regards to the attacks on education and on black history. A lot of times it's not at the forefront of people's minds. And as Lorenzo said, a lot of times fighting uh, fascists in the street or these kind of direct action uh, items are. Can you talk about the significance of resisting on the front of education and on black history? and why that's important. And can you tell us a little bit about the history of what it took to get black studies? Because I don't think a lot of people think about the 
struggle and the significance of the radicalism it actually took to get to black studies and black history to the point where it was in schools and universities like it is today. Can you tell us a little bit about that history and why it's significant in terms of anti-fascism? Well, in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, a lot of black students um, protested on their campuses uh, because there were there, there were, wasn't any black studies. When I started graduate school at Purdue University, this was you know way back in the older days, in 1970, uh, the uh, they had just gotten a black cultural center there. Uh, it was the first year for it. But the students had to march and protest and sit in and take over buildings to get these kind of programs, okay? They weren't just, you know, benignly handed over by administrations. You know, students fought for them. Uh, in fact, a former next door neighbor of mine when I was growing up um, as a kid in Missouri, he was part of the uh, students who rebelled at uh, Cornell University. That's where he went to college. And they had a really big uh, protest there. It took over buildings, buildings for several days. So, black studies was fought for, okay? Education, the Black Panther Party thought that, you know, we had a 10 point platform program, and point number six uh, of that program was this whole issue of uh, education. Uh, we demand a, 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 a true education that reflects, uh, you know, the racist history of the United States, because if you don't know your history, you can't organize to fight against problems you have, and you can't, you can't do anything if you don't know what your true history is. So for the Black Panther Party, education was very, was very key, it was key enough that it was in our 10-point platform and program. Just hold it. It was in our 10-point platform program, just like uh, being, you know, fighting against police police brutality, us realizing that police police terror was state terror. We had to fight it on that level. So if you don't know, obviously if you don't know who you are and if, if, if your whole history of understanding the goal of, you know, who you are, you know, by myself and the great, great, great granddaughter of enslaved Africans, uh, my great great grandparents and their children were enslaved right here in Tennessee, near Nashville. We had all kind of family reunions and they kept that history alive. But if you don't know your history, you can't you can't change change the world. You can't do what you need to organize. So uh, education is definitely very important. Um, I'm passing on to Lorenzo. Lorenzo, can you tell me a little bit about the about what ungovernability means in terms of resisting fascism and fighting fascism. Let me just say it this way. Um, there has to be two primary methods of combating fascism. One is the government institutions, including the electoral system and, and, and all the other institutions, have to be counted well, with you know, direct democracy, with uh, dual power, all these things that we talk about, we have to make those into actual programs, protests and like that. And we have to, and that's one of the ways we can win people over 
within the context that they understand it. Organizers and myself, when I was much younger, had this problem of understanding and thinking in the minds of the people, of what, what people are doing. Now, we, we're not exceptional uh, persons ourselves because we're organizers. We build institutions to counter the state. That's how I became an anarchist. That was one thing that won me over anarchists. Those two concepts of dual power and direct democracy. They are extremely important. And even today, even today, we look at them as offensive weapons. They are something we can use in the communities to counter the government, to counter the local government, to bring people into an understanding that the electoral system in the United States is a fraud. And for black people, it's totally a fraud because, hell, we haven't even been able to vote for 100 years. I mean, you know, with all the time that black people have been in this country, they may have been able to vote for 100 years, maybe. I'm not even sure about that. Because it, it was in 1964 during my lifetime, and people were given the right to vote. Like people were given the right to vote. So it's a fraud. And it doesn't make a difference how many black politicians we elect or whatever. We still deal with the same conditions of oppression. And fascism is the protector of oppression. Fascism. That's why we have mass imprisonment. Uh, that's why we have police being murdered, I mean, people being murdered in the street for nothing, just for them to express their power, police power, and the power of the state. Being ungovernable is not an individual thing. It, you know, you say, well, I'm going to be ungovernable. Now I'm not. It's a political commitment of yourself and others. You organize others to build a mass base in opposition to those in power. People lose track of that. They get to thinking about somebody on their level. Well, that's a punk over there. Well, a Nazi sitting there. I'm going over there. I'm going after it. You know. They don't understand that the police. Stand for the same thing, the same sort, same type of political sentiment and so forth, except they have political power to come in and grab the kill. They have power to arrest you. They have power to invade your house. They have power to do all this stuff, and they're getting more and more of it. That's what we talk about. Cops in hell, every city is cops in. Every damn And so, I always tell people, look, and, and the Black Panther Party did show some things. And it was the major organization in the 1960s. A lot of people don't quite understand it. They don't know it. And the ideas of, for instance, Black autonomy don't just come from quite radical politics. They come from a movement in the 60s that arose, because we, you know, black people were told for years and years and years, propaganda and other white sources, that black people couldn't accomplish anything building a movement themselves, that they had to fall behind whites, that they had to fall behind liberals, they had to fall behind somebody. They couldn't do anything themselves. 
And so with the Black Panther Party and other movements in that period of the Black Power Movement and all these movements came along, they were autonomous movements. Even the Civil Rights Movement was autonomous from what had happened before. And all these people were shocked that black people could get out and organize in the streets, that black people could defend themselves, that black people were leading the day, that black people were changing the world. They were shocked by that. That's one of the things that came out of this. So the idea that, that black people could unite and build allies, white or otherwise, that we could build allies, that we could start building a base of revolutionary uh, well, theory, of course, but practice. Practice. We could in the streets organize the people. What I always tell people that the Black Panther Party was, was a revolutionary group of community organizers. And that's a simple thing, actually. Today, now the state and the corporation realize this. And so this is why they started financing so-called social justice programs. They wanted to make sure that another group like this didn't come into existence. And that they were going to finance, right, they were going to finance so-called social change movements. And I've been saying for years that this was nothing but conservative. He's oh, he's crazy. What, why do you say things like that? I work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> I wish I was joking with you. I know for a fact that somebody came crying to me about me saying that. That, that, that you know, we're in the state where the capitalist state and the corporations, the foundations run the left. And I've been in situations where I've had to almost fight my way out after saying that, to be quite honest. You know, some of the countries I've visited and cities and states in this country. If you start talking about that, the nonprofit industrial complex, people get mad. <laughs> I had a guy go for a gun, a knife, I don't know what <laughs> But, uh, you know, people get upset on that, but it needs to be said. Because we can't get freedom if we're following the man's program. We need to develop our own program. You know, we, that's why I became an anarchist. We had to develop our own program. And anarchism is supposed to be an ideological construct that allows you to build your own stuff. Build your own theory. Now, that's why I never understood people that didn't like the fact that black folks were organizing uh, a black anarchist tendency. Everybody should be able to build their own type of movement within this one, or build their own movement outside of whatever, whatever they want to do. They should be able to do that. And that's what autonomy is. Autonomy meant that we didn't have to work with follow the government's program. We didn't have to fall behind the preachers. That young people particularly could change the world. This is the, the danger to fascists. They like, people like to make you think that fascism can't be beat. Oh my goodness, this is going to be repeated again in, like in Nazi Germany and so forth and so on. Well, this ain't Germany. And <laughs> You know, you've got people in this country that are willing to fight back. Hitler himself said that 
if people had been willing to fight him at the very beginning of his existence as a movement, they would have defeated him. He said this himself. Now, we, uh, Trump and these billionaires and the rest of his forces, we need to understand, you know, this is not an electoral issue alone. I mean, we do, and we are at a stage of fascist populism. Fascist populism, where they do use, they, they use the electoral system to take power. And they still want to do that here. They had done it. What we have to understand, though, is we have to use an organizing campaign outside of electoral politics, in opposition to electoral politics, that's in communities, that's with poor people, that's with workers and with others that build a new kind of movement, a new kind of anti-fascist tendency. And I've been trying to take on this stuff for years. I don't know one person can do so, but I do believe that we need a movement where it's all power to the people, not to politicians, not to preachers, not to fake-ass gangsters running, running these banks, none of that. So we have to deal with these right around rascals and we have to be in their face. We have to be in their face. On their ass. That's what we have to do. And until people understand that and stop thinking that, well, we wait for the next election and, and the Democrats take us on the power, you know, <laughs> it's complete and utter fat fallacy. So we learn these things and we understand it in practical terms. I'm not a uh, academic, although I got some friends for academics. My wife was an academic, but I'm not an academic, so I'm not going to tell you things that you can't explain to somebody else. The, the, the power of the, the Black Panther Party in the newspaper, and the Black Panther newspaper, was that they said um, it was able to take complicated political theories and teach them to the to people with a little education and they can turn around and teach it to others. That's a powerful, powerful tool uh, that like matters. And of course, that was a long time ago newspaper text of relevance. I don't know about all that now, but I'm just saying the way to reach people, to talk to people, to educate people, and not just people who are comfortable with people who who live in different neighborhoods and so forth. Uh, poor people, black people, you know, that everybody tell, oh, those are terrible people. Don't go down there. If you're an honest white man, don't go down there. I've, I've, I've heard that uh, crap in years. You know, I, I, don't go down there. Those guys to be, they're low life. They're low life, so whatever. And, um, of course, I was one of them, so. <laughs> It's important that we look at the idea of fighting those in power. That we don't get captivated by political 
terminology alone, that we be able to explain it in simple terms. What's happening to them? You know, people see somebody getting shy, they oh, it's terrible. We've got to get in touch with Congress. Uh, so and so, no, we've got to get in touch with ourselves and get the people in the street and kick some ass. That's what we have to do. We have to be able to resist it and stop it from continuing to This is the only way it can stop it. You will never stop it by day. You will never stop it by electoral politics alone. It just won't happen. It's not meant to happen. You will only be able to do it when the people rise up. And um, by doing that, you put yourself in a position where we talk about dual power. Dual power is when you are able to confront the state. You're, you're organizing the people on your level and you're trying to take them out, sap power from the state, sap power from the bankers, sap power from all those people who are destroying the community. That's that's what that's what fighting fascism is. It's not just even hooking up guns and, and you know and parades and everybody. That's all the black people are doing: hooking up guns and parades and marching around and so forth. And they did that, of course, but. There was a program. There was a with all of this. There was also a uh, alternate economy where they were able to give food to people free. Where they were able to give uh, medical care to people free. It was all of that as well. People's programs, and you don't see that today. I mean, it's like, oh well, we've got to reach away. Well, here's the key. Does what you're doing threaten the state enough that they will come in guns busting and guns blazing and kick your door in? Or they'll arrest you or get a coup, something like that. Does, does it do that? And uh, if it does that, then it's just a revolutionary program. If it doesn't do it, then you need to say that it's nothing but a sellout. Charity. Charity. Um, from there, I really am thinking about what one of the things that you said that stuck out to me, Lorenzo, was you, uh, you said every city is cop city. And, um, what stuck out to me is that made me think about the fact that, you know, since we have been living through these really troubling times, we've seen repeatedly how the state takes crisis and makes it into opportunity. And one of the ways that we saw crisis turn into opportunity for the state was with the way that police funds were allocated through COVID relief funding. And all of this uh, upsurge and uprising rebellion that happened uh, following the killing of George Floyd, all the uprisings that happened in 2020, we saw people get cycled uh, back, to, back into electoralism. We saw people get uh, deflated um, and feel uh, rightfully exhausted. But we, we saw it get turned into more money for policing, more investment in electoralism and uh, party politics and representative democracy. So one of the things I wanted to ask 
if you could both speak to this, maybe Janana, you could uh, start. Janana, I've talked with you a lot and listened to you talk a lot about your um, involvement with uh, the Jesse Jackson campaign and the things that you learned about uh, party politics and uh, how significant that campaign was. And I also heard y'all talk about the pitfalls and the things that y'all learned, both have learned from that era. And so with that being said, George Jackson comes to mind talking about how the essence of fascism is reform. And can you speak to me a little bit about your experience and what you learned from that and how uh, there are these pitfalls that lead people back into actually things that bolster and strengthen fascism when it comes to party politics and the things you've seen with electoralism. And if after you speak, Lorenzo, if you could kind of talk about a little bit about maybe what George Jackson was getting at when he said uh, fascism was was really captured and, and reformed in that sense of reform. So, Janine, can you start us off? And then, Lorenzo, you go from there. Uh, after the uh, after the, 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 the last program of the Black Panther Party ended in I guess it was nineteen eighty one, and again since the organization no longer existed anymore, uh, uh, I joined an organization uh, uh, it's called the National Black Independent Political Party. Uh, many people probably you may never heard of it. It originally started as the National Black Political Assembly in the mid-70s. Um, this whole notion of getting uh, black people as much as possible elected to office around the country, whether it was mayor, city council, or whatever. And eventually the National Black Political Assembly became the National Black Independent Political Party by the early mid-80s. Uh, you know, when I there was no longer a Black Panther Party for me to be in. And so I joined what we call INDEP, National Black Independent Political Party. And I was in California then, living in Oakland, in the Bay Area. And uh, at one point was uh, the uh, co-chair of the Bay Area chapter of INDEP. INDEP believed that uh, Black people should have their own political party independent of the Republicans and the Democrats. Now, they, they said black people who want to bunch Republicans and Democrats, they have a right to. But India thought it was you know, useless to be a Republican or a Democrat. So their idea was to form a party uh, in which you would run for office on the India ticket, okay? So, by 1984, Jesse Jackson uh, ran for president the first time, right? Now, um, I never thought Jesse Jackson was going to, to win the presidency. Uh, you know, I was very skeptical that would happen. I was skeptical, actually, that Barack Obama would win, but that's another story. But I know. Times have changed, and I had not. And I realized how times have changed. But at any rate, when Jesse Jackson ran for president um, the first time in 1984, a lot of black people who had never paid any attention whatsoever to electoral politics, didn't believe in it or didn't care, all of a sudden they were really excited. 
because this looks like a viable campaign by a black person in America to be president of the United States. And a lot of black people who had never even voted, registered to vote. And Jesse Jackson ran for president the first time in 1984. Now, I was active in NVIP, and there was a split in NVIP, because some people in NVIP thought that we should keep on doing our thing in terms of saying that black people should not be Republicans or Democrats. Other people in NVIP thought, well, you know, this is a black man running, and Jesse Jackson is well known, and he may have a real shot at the White House. And so you had people, uh, there was a split, some people in NVIP left NVIP, to work on Jesse Jackson's campaign and you know, others didn't. What I thought, what I learned was a mistake, but I thought that okay, while I didn't believe Jesse Jackson was going to win, I thought there were enough black people who were going to be excited and involved in this campaign so that when he did lose, that would form a good base for the National Black Independent Political Party. We would have all these people now we could recruit into India. So I worked on the Jackson campaign uh, in the Bay Area, his first campaign. He ran twice, he ran in 84 and 88. And I worked on the 84 campaign in the Bay Area. But I thought it was an opportunity to get more black people involved in doing something independent outside of the Democratic Party because we were going to see that this black man was not going to win the Democratic nomination. So I was right, he didn't win the nomination, but what happened was in the process, you had a lot of good community-based, uh, grassroots, independent black folks. What happened to them? They got siphoned off into the Democratic Party, okay? And um, they were lost, in some cases, they were lost forever to these good, grassroots, independent black community organizations in their neighborhoods. So, you know, this is, we talk about counterinsurgency sometimes. To me, this was counterinsurgency, you know, by the Democratic Party because they realized how popular the Jackson campaign was in the black community. And they did not want there to be any kind of independent black political organizing outside of the Democratic Party. So they grabbed all these, a lot of these black people up and put them in positions in the Democratic Party. Um, Democratic Party. So I was wrong. I failed to understand why, you know, what, you know, the fact that Jesse lost was that wasn't a big thing to, to figure out. But I was wrong in thinking that the consciousness of black people had risen to a point where they would see how what the Democratic Party had done, they would just automatically leave in numbers and join the National Black Independent Political Party or some other independent black political group. That did not happen. Uh, and uh, there was a big setback to any kind of independent, black independent political autonomous action that you wanted to have. We lost a lot in Jackson's 84 campaign and in his 88 campaign. But this is all part of the power structure's uh, strategy. There is this counterinsurgency. It gets you to, to do what they want you to do, to bring you into their fold. So, um, and yeah, I learned a really harsh, bitter lesson um, in that whole situation. Um, uh, 
I guess if I had not gotten involved with the Jackson's campaign, I wouldn't have learned the lesson. So maybe it's good that I did, because it's a lesson that I needed to learn. And it's one I'll never forget. And so the brings up what's reform have to do with all this? What does reform have to do with fascism? Well, <clears throat> reform maintains the state. The electoral politics is a reform, actually. Every year, whenever they have this, it's, it's something to maintain the state, to make you believe that those in power have a plan to help you on your local situation. That's what it's designed to do. And, uh, but in terms of George Jackson, he talked about electoral politics being, being a scam, but he also talked about programs, social programs, and other things like that as well, uh, that the state has been forced to use um, to justify them staying in power. You know, um, some social programs uh, are, exist today, you know, and Social Security is one that, that I can think of, but, and there are others. But those programs were imposed under circumstances where the uh, government was under extreme duress and uh, faced actual revolution in the street. And so they utilized this program. And over and over again, you find them doing that. I mean, one thing, I could, even if you took, look at Obama's campaign, I can remember a conversation I had with somebody you know, 20 years, believe it or not, before, you know, he came into existence. But we talked about how the government was going to be in a situation which is inevitable because of crisis. The government and the capitalist system is a form of crisis. One form, one form another, years after years, and, you know, the economy, with the economy and the, with the political structure. So the 1960s was a threat to state power, and they almost lost it. They were, they were effectively facing a revolution in that period, and they almost lost everything. They realized it after time. They started talking about programs they could design now to control the situation. So that that wouldn't happen again. And ever since the 60s, they've been living down what happened with the anti-war movement and and the their defeat in Vietnam in the colonial war in Vietnam. They talked about how prisoners built a mass movement inside the prison and outside the prison. For instance, how does that happen? How did they lose control of that? They talked about how women now were fighting and raising hell for, for liberation. And the first inklings of the first uh, instances of what was then called gay rights or gay liberation. How does that all come about? I mean, what, where does this come from? It came from the black movement first with civil rights, and many of these young people had went into the civil rights movement, especially with the student nonviolent coordinators. And then they had been radicalized, and they, after that period, 
folded or ended, then they went into other organizations, other radical organizations that they created. SDS, which is one of the organizations that came out of uh, students for a democratic society. Which, and uh, it was an important movement. I mean, in the sense that, you know, it was one, a nationwide movement. It's a radical tendency. There's all kinds of forces. There's linked with the black struggle to some degree. But the whole idea of giving the people reforms in opposition to what the movement is doing. For instance, one of the reasons they wanted to destroy the, the Black Panther Party free breakfast for children program because it was winning people over. You feed people and you take care of children and people love you for it. And J. Edgar Hoover, who's the head of the FBI, didn't realize that. They were frightened. They were terrified. And so they devised their own program in opposition to that. And I guess it still lives, lives today to some extent. I don't know, but uh, certainly these things, these are examples where you can look at it and know exactly how they're using it, you know, to stop a revolution from taking place or a revolutionary tendency from winning over the mass of people. But beyond that, you know, beyond that, it's a tool for the state to exercise state power. You know, if they don't have to resort to uh, the cutter, if they don't have to resort to the iron fist, then they consider that great. But at times when they are under pressure, either from international events, uh, the challenges in periods, uh, either from, uh, you know, uh, domestic fight back movements and, and, and all of this. These are things that cause them to resort to uh, reforms, a series of reforms. Reforms are just ways of staving off revolution. That's what, that's what it really means. That's what Cameron George is talking about. It staves off revolution. That's what it's meant to do. There once was land in this land under starry skies above But they fenced it in Now it's interstates and interchanges, monocrop and truck stops Cause they fenced it in I wish that every golf course became a WMA And every politician knew the rent that we paid Just to drink ourselves to death and go to jobs that we hate to be fenced and turn us loose and let us rattle off our chain and lift the pain from our faces. And every hour on the clock or in a classroom or a cell could not contain us. I just don't see any glory in industrial cattle. Truckers' bodies twist from a life in the saddle. There's freedom ring. To death rattle You won't fence us in
indigenous people And I didn't have to live in fear of law from the steeple The grievance make you strong, or is it what makes you feeble? You won't fence us in, though you might try You won't fence us in
That's a lot, but I'll do my best. Um, I guess we're going to deal with the, the last part, you know, but there have been a lot of, since the early 90s, there have been, what, maybe 25 attempts to start the Black Panther Party again. You heard of various new Black Panther Party's groups since the early 90s. And, you know, I appreciate the fact that there are people who respected the Black Panther Party and wanted to do something like that in their, in their time, but, uh, you know, you cannot, you know, cannot romanticize, too many folks romanticize the Black Panther Party, they romanticize that period in history. It was a revolutionary period in history, but October 1966, when, uh, you know, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale started the Black Panther Party, um, when that, that day is, is gone, you cannot take the kind of, we talk about concrete social, political, economic issues that were going on in October of 1966, those are never going to exist the same way that they did uh, later on. You can't do that. You cannot use a model, an organization from the past, and try to recreate it 30, even 20 years later, because conditions are constantly flowing in the society. So that is one thing that I would definitely uh, want to caution uh, the younger generations of activists to do. You can certainly look to the Black Panther Party and other groups for models. Uh, I mean, the survival programs. When the Black Panther Party started the Breakfast, Breakfast for Children program, that program uh, organized, got a lot more support for the party, maybe, than even the community patrols of the police, okay? Because, you know, the party, they were feeding hungry kids. A lot of poor, poor kids might not have breakfast in the morning if they hadn't been in a neighborhood where there was a black panther, a free black panther party breakfast program. I remember um, standing in this long line for the uh, for the wake of Huey P. Newton. You know, Huey was murdered in August of 1989 in, in Oakland, California. Um, you know, it was, it was a hit. It was an assassination by political forces that had long had issues with the Black Panther Party, and that's a whole other workshop. But it, it was a deliberate assassination. It was a hit. And um, so I was in the line at the wake, you know, going to human body, and this was a long line. And a lot of them were um, people I heard them talk. They were saying, yeah, man, uh, I, when I was a kid, Black Panther Party, I used to go there and get breakfast, because sometimes that's the only meal I had in the day. My mother would say, yeah, you gotta go get breakfast, because I don't have any food. That was an important program. When you deal with people's everyday material needs, you can get their support, because you are speaking to something that is real for them. There were people who supported the armed community patrols of the police. I myself think that the most important contributions the Black Panther Party made was that it challenged state power by saying that black people had a right to defend themselves against state terror. I think that's one of the main contributions that they made. But those survival programs, the free food programs, the free health clinics, you know, free pest control, um, they had, uh, you know, senior citizens, they needed to get their social security checks cash. They didn't have direct positive back in those days. Like, you know, now if you don't have a, a bank account, Social Security will set one up for you so they can deposit your, your money there because they're not going to send you a check. 
those days were back in the 60s and 70s, you had to actually get a check and go to the bank. The Black Panther Party had a, a survival program called Seniors Against a Fearful Environment. We pick people up, escort them to the bank, to cash their check, because what you had to do, you wanted the money, you had to go cash the check. So those were programs that people needed, that they could relate to and understand. That's what won them so, so much support. But seeing all those people in line that day to view, to view Huey's body as a weapon made me realize how important those survival programs were for kids who didn't have any other way to eat. You know, the, uh, the Black Panther Party talked about raising the consciousness of the people, and they really, really felt like our newspaper was the primary weapon to that. But the breakfast program was key to that, too, because the breakfast program brought attention to the fact that we had all these hungry kids in the United States. And if the Black Panther Party could feed a few of them in a few cities, how come the government wasn't giving free breakfast programs? Uh, to the kids. Now, there were free breakfast programs that were actually established right after World War II, but they were never on the scale that you know you have now. Kids can get free breakfast and and free uh, lunch at a lot of a lot of public schools, and those programs grew because of Black Panther Party's free breakfast programs because they did not they did you wouldn't have have the stuff today because the government didn't want the Black Panther Party to get credit. <coughs> All this credit for feeding hungry kids. So they started, you know, in the schools with the breakfast program, which was good because we didn't have, we couldn't feed all those hungry kids across the United States. I don't even know how many there are. So it was good that those programs got started. So the survival programs were definitely, definitely key programs. They met the needs of the people, and that's what you have to do. Uh, as uh, I heard that yeah, brother talk yesterday, talking about uh, what was going on in Cop City, the latest from Cop City, and he was saying the problem that they faced initially uh, in the black, you know, the black community where this where it's being built was an area that was hit hard by the crack cocaine epidemic in Atlanta back in the 80s. So it's like if you go into that area of town, you talk about well. We don't want any police facilities. And people say, what do you mean no police? Because these people remember how bad things were with the crack cocaine epidemic. So this is where education comes in. This is where you have to organize. The organizer has to be an educator. Because a lot of people in, in the black community um, uh, do support the police. Because they feel like that's all they have. So if you're going to come in and talk about being opposed to a facility for police, that's good, but you're going to have to explain to people in terms, not a lot of rhetoric, not a lot of left jargon, because those of us on the left, you know, we, we're good at using jargon a lot. I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. I have a friend of mine who's in the Black Panther Party, too. She said, but you know, so nice. She said, they don't know, we don't know what this jargon means. You've got to break it down. You know, you have to tell people why, you know, Cop City is bad in a community that had all the death and destruction from the crack cocaine epidemic. You have to educate people about that. And I really appreciate him saying that. Uh, and it's hard work. It's hard work. And I'm not saying it's easy work, but it has to be done. And it has to be done with everything that we do as we try to establish dual power. Okay, we have to explain it to people in terms they can understand. 
So, so Lorenzo, um, you know, everything y'all are saying, I think, uh, is synthesized and so much of the work, uh, that you've done. And picking up on the point that, uh, Janina just made about not romanticizing the past and, uh, not falling into the, to the same traps and mistakes of, and things that didn't work. What does, what does black anarchism from your perspective, from your, uh, from your point of view, from the theoretical work you've done as well as the organizing work, how does black anarchism cohere these, these different points and synthesize these different points? for this contemporary moment to fight fascism? And what does it offer in terms of people actually being in their community, understanding and identifying need the way that survival programs did, not falling into these uh, same mistakes? What does it offer in terms of something visionary uh, that isn't uh, getting trapped by orthodoxy or um, rigid kind of thinking? created uh, the first black uh, anarchist formation in uh, 1994 in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, black uh, black uh, autonomy uh, collected as it was originally. When we created that, we created it out of an understanding of community-based organizing, community-based organizing, and political education. Now, first people would say political education, people thought you were talking about running for office and all that, and I had to explain, no, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is organizing training. We're trying to teach you how to organize your community and to take over your community from the banks, from the politicians, and from the the landlords and the rest of them that are oppressing uh, you and your community, and how to resist the police and so forth, all these things that happen to people, poor people especially in their communities. And whatever organizing you do has to be based on a certain kind of reality of what the people are, are experiencing in those communities. You can't use the same concepts from a white middle class or upper class community in working class inner city, you know, projects, for instance. And uh, so we built some popularity based around dealing with the actual material condition that people uh, were living under and that people beings were experiencing. I, um, one of the first things I did when I got out of prison in 19, uh, 83, 84, uh, was to organize against police terrorism. It wasn't even a mass issue then, but in those days. You know, there was no uh, Black Lives Matter and all of that. We were organizing on a local level to deal with people who were being murdered in the Black community by the police. Like, at one point, Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I'm from, has a large number of police deaths in the country where they see under 200,000 people. 
And uh, many of these police that we knew were clients before, or sympathetic to the Ku Klux Klan, and had joined the police department, and they were taking people out of the jail and killing them, or beating them to death in the jail. And it was the case of one man who was beating beat the jail to death. Uh, his family became radicalized by it, and they started a group. They called it Southern Citizen Justice. Now, this was not an anarchist organization, even though it turns out there were anarchists over in it. Some I didn't even know by the time when I got involved. And uh, so we built a, a local campaign uh, in opposition to the sellout uh, preachers and, and the civil rights groups and all of that, and in opposition to the cops and the politicians themselves. We stabilized the entire city through our protests. So we, we had campaigns going for 15 years in that city. But the thing was, when we were through, before we were through, we were able to take and educate everybody in that city. They had an opinion one way or another, but everybody in that city knew about the people who had been murdered, knew about why it happened, who the cops were, and all this stuff, because we made sure that they understood. And this is the thing. Political education or organizer training has to start from the concept of people who you're dealing with, who you're trying to communicate with, uh, that you can talk to them in their language. And this is how you win loyalties, and win, this is how you can come into communities, and people will accept you. Uh, there's no real mystery about it. Even with the Black Panther Party, it was not the only organization in the 1960s that was doing revolutionary community organizing. You know, uh, when we were up in Detroit, they talked about the, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and, uh, and other groups like it. They were important in that period. And, all, and during the Black Power period, there were cities, there were groups, so-called black militant groups, who organized in, in every city, large and small, and they were able to build a base in, the, in their communities. That's what really made it so important. Not so much the leaders, the photogenic leaders that were, you know, on the newspaper uh, pages or on television or whatever. It wasn't a question of that. It was people in their communities challenging the bankers, challenging the racist cops, challenging the politicians, and all of it. And that was what destabilized the country. It destabilized the system. And this is what we're trying to do. We, in this period, in this period, there are things right now, ways you can organize right now to destabilize the system today. I never go and tell anybody any kind of crap about give up, people. Give up and join the Democrats. Or join the Republicans. That's the only way you're going to succeed. They've arranged it so that you can't win. There are people who do that effectively every day, so called professionals. Ain't one of them. And I'm just I'm telling you that it's possible. What is I've done? I've done it over 50 years as an organizer. Can't get out and do it as much as I did then, but I can tell you about it and how to do it. You know? And you have to build. If you've got organizers in a movement 
That movement has to not just be talking to itself. But what, what is that? That's just a club. We have to go beyond that and go into the communities and politically educate and link up with the people. We had a program, I can't tell you that we got a chance to put it together, but our comrade uh, Michael Simpson in Los Angeles during the uh, so-called Rodney King debate in the, what, 80s? 80s? 89, 89, something like that. 92, I'm sorry. 92. When you know, the, the thing took place. But then, who had to pick up the pieces and who had to unite the community? They were able to get the gangs, so-called street gangs and criminals that everybody says, oh, don't, don't go down there, don't speak to them, they're just terrible people. They politically educated them, these organizers did. Michael Zinson had been a member of the Black Panther Party in Los Angeles. And they built a new organization after the Black Panther Party had folded years before and created a mass campaign around supporting the gang troops. See, the, uh, the cops, if they don't have somebody killing each other or some crime or something going on, well, they don't, they don't have a, a way to get, get, get paid. They'll lose their jobs. If, you, if we created some kind of dynamic program to deal with the stuff in our own communities, they, their whole system would fold. I'm serious. It would fold. It would be in crisis. And we like it in crisis. <laughs> but, the, but the point is, organizers have to understand that you can't uh, preach them to people. You have to wake the people up first. No, I'm say that. You have to wake the people up first, and then you'll get action. He said organizers expect action. But you have to wake the people up first. And so that's what that's where our job is. We have to be an alarm clock to wake the people up, to, to deal with people so that on their level, on the level of understanding, on their level of uh, condition, condition, whatever, what they're dealing with. Versus when we talk about fighting prisons, damn, I've been telling people for years, look. You have got to organize communities where prisoners come from. Not just the prisoners. You have to organize their communities. You have to, to make the people whole. You have, to, you have to deal with the poverty that the white government, that these people that, that, that are in power, and the Negroes too, that are in that world, that are, that you have to deal with those people uh, in conflict. Crisis is what we want. I mean, if you, if, you, if you get in a situation and I say, well, we don't want to create a crisis. We want to create a crisis because crisis is a condition where we can have a revolution. If the, if the system is strong and the people believe in it, well, it's hard for you to come along and build from a base that can transform things. It ain't possible, it's hard. <clears throat> The reason why this period is so different, it seems, to be a movement is because they have used reform to sustain this system. They have used electoral politics and they got some glad-handed black politician or, or Latino politician or whatever you need 
They'll sit them down to your house or sit them down to your neighborhood. And they'll sit down there and talk about how they're going to do all the same things that the Black Panther Party did. But we're not going to use violence. We're not going to, we're too smart for violence. We don't have to do that. Why those in power will listen to us. We have to expose and ideologically defeat them as well. So this is part of organizing. People tell you it's just taking an issue. I'm going to tell you one, one thing that's important. And you can live with this for the rest of your life. Activism and organizing are not the same. You can get an issue and have activism and a one-off or whatever, or you can stay with it for a few weeks or months or whatever. But it's not the same. Organizing is to empower the masses of people in a community or in a city or whatever the case may be. Organizing is the road to freedom. Not necessarily activism. Organizing can actually be a road to ungovernability. We have to have ungovernability with our relationship with the state. Because if the government has your loyalty and has the loyalty of the people, you can't win. You have to ideologically defeat the state, defeat their program, defeat their ideology, defeat their concepts. You have to do that. And that's why political education is important. You know, I used to fight like hell against the whole idea of political education and uh, against uh, Organize a trainer, training as I call it. It's a fight like hell against all of that. I thought it was a scam, a trick, or whatever. And then I began to understand that people need a way, a framework of understanding things. Even if you use their language or whatever you do, they need a way of understanding what the hell you're talking about and can it be successful? Because if they don't believe it can be successful, why should they unite with you? You have to be able to convince people that there is a chance to win, that you can win with these methods that we're talking about. And the organizer cannot be the leader. The organizer can be the way to train people. It can be the way to uh, build a new alliances. It can do a lot of things, but the organizer has to give power to the people. All the power to the people, not to politicians, again, not to preachers, not to vested elements downtown in the banks or in the business offices. The people. And when you can take the people and use them and turn them into a force that can then that they can use to build power. Whether they may not be able to take all power at that moment in that historical period but they can match power with power. People power against money, vested interest, fighting to take the real estate from the banks, take real estate from the investment companies. You know what I'm saying? These are the kind of things that we can do now. We need to be doing it now. We need to be fighting prisons, but we need to be doing it in a different fashion. We need to be doing it as a community-based movement where the people are part of the protesting. 
Not that they're being led, but they're part of the movement. It's different. It's real. It's power. It's dead to the state. Because the state can only hold power if they have people that believe what they're doing is just an appointment. That, that sounds ridiculous. What the hell? I learned that in, I went to college one time. I dropped out. <laughs> but I, and I learned some things. I mean, really, I learned some things about how the government and the ruling class and the bankers and all these people, how they get power, maintain power, and then how they brainwash people to accepting that what they're doing is all right, what they're doing is just, and what they're doing is appropriate. You know, these things are what they train people in college to do. All these new forms, new politicians that you're seeing on the fresh faces, and Obamas, and people like that. Obama kind of came out of Chicago. Yeah, he represented the hood. He had been at one point a so-called community organizer himself. You know, one of these uh, community organizers financed by corporations. You know, poverty pimps, we call them. He used to think all the poverty pimps was, was white. I beg to differ. But he is just an example. We have to fight things in this period of it's great that you want to hear about the Black Panther Party, and the Black Panther Party achieved certain things in the 1960s. But right now, there are ways to understand what they did, there are things that you can do now, and whatever city you're in, I always tell people that if there's going to be a revolution, it's going to begin in the city. Uh, you might always even, almost even say that you can start a revolution in a city. Why in the hell, how the hell is that going to be done? You can challenge those in power on the local level. That's what dual power really is. You're challenging those on the local level. You're taking power from them and giving it to the people. Or the people taking it. And this is important to understand. Because this is the way you're able to build mass space. You know, People think it's bad space. just, we'll get an idea. We'll take this idea. And we'll go out in the street and so on. And that's activism. Organizing is where the people in the communities are fighting for long base power. Long term power. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Let's everybody give them a thunderous round of applause. Federation 
and we've got a table right there to my immediate left. Um, and um, like the purchase of our materials, and I want to thank the people who are helping us with that table from right here in town, Queenie and, and Bailey and Al, who have taken really good care of me and Lorenzo since we've been here. Um, you know, it means a lot for us as elders to have people who understand that we are elders. We're not dead yet, but, but we are elders, and we, you know, you get older, we have different needs, and I want to thank Queenie and Bailey and Al. Thank you very much for helping us. So I think we have um, a little bit of time left for a few questions. If folks want to come up to the mic and you have a question, um, all that I would ask is if you can keep your question fairly short and just you know keep it relevant to the topic at hand. If you want to ask about something pertaining to the topics we discuss or something that's relevant, just a short question. We just want to do a few and then we can uh, close out. So you said that fascism is a stage of capitalism. At what point do we cross that threshold and it becomes more of a fascist state than just a capitalist state? I, I would say that we're in the process right now of you know, going to different stages. You know, I just take the you know uh, state of Tennessee where Rental and I live in. Chad Whitley, you're all familiar with the situation where the uh, white legislators kicked out two of the black legislators. Everybody heard about that. That was on national news. These state legislators across the country are increasingly uh, taking on fascist powers and fascist control. Um, you know, they, uh, and they're doing it. These, these people were elected to office, right? Uh, so-called elected officials. In my estimation, we are crossing the threshold where, to me, this even was black legislation were kicked out. They said what happened to them was fascism. And they were right about that. It was. Okay? And so, I think, you know, it's a fluid thing. Um, it's, I don't know if you can think there's any particular moment that I could predict. But one thing about it was people, and the people will know, I think. They will know when you see some great, you know, upsurge in the country, nationwide upsurge in the country, that would be because the people may not have sat down and talked about fascism, but they will know things have gotten to the point where we can't, we won't tolerate this anymore. That's my opinion. I think that right now, for instance, you're saying things seem bad now, and they are. The economy is collapsing. Social structure is falling apart. Fascists are on march. The government is becoming more undemocratic and repressive. Mass imprisonment, concentration. This is leading us to a revolutionary civil war. That's where we're going. Now, my understanding and my hope is that we need to be ready 
and understand that a crisis of the existing economy, government, society is what makes revolution possible. That was one of the things I've seen in my talk. And the thing is, we should not be afraid. We should be ready. So fascism, I think we're looking at that right now. I think we're at a historical moment. A historical moment. And the Black Panther Party believed that the state of the economy and the state of the political structure then was a national security state. A national security state. They believed that was a black fascist state. For black people, we've always been under conditions similar to fascism. In fact, they have been uh, even worse than uh, the kind of fascism that has existed in other parts of the world. It's just that the people in this country don't believe it. They believe they're somewhere else and something else. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks, Lorenzo, Janina, and William. This is great. I was going to ask, one of the main contradictions internal to the Black Panther Party that I found in my reading was between the above ground and the underground. And I wondered if either of y'all could speak on that and if you could share your thoughts on that in the contemporary moment, especially in light of all the repression coming down against the movement against Cop City. Well, there was two sentences Black Panther Party was created in Oakland in 1966. And then there was the third stage of the Black Liberation Army, which was created on the East Coast. And there were two, two political ideologies there. And uh, I can't, this moment, go into a long spiel about why. Uh, I think someone's wrong, some that sort of thing. Uh, I would just say this. If you have a revolutionary tendency of uh, an armed struggle that is not supported by the masses, uh, I don't think that propaganda by the team work. You don't have a mass base of support. I believe in I believe that there will be uh, a revolutionary struggle in this country to transform it. I believe it. I just don't believe it would be a small vanguard organization that takes over the role of the masses in struggle. Now, there are people who disagree with me, and that's fine. Uh, I talk to people. Now, as for the question, uh, whether you didn't exactly ask about it, so somebody won't come up with that. <laughs> <laughs> Nonviolence during the 1960s was not just, uh, I should say, the civil rights movement in the 1960s was not just a nonviolent movement. I talked about the uh, Black Armed Guard in Grove, North Carolina. Uh, 
But there are others, you know, but the, the deepest core defense and justice was several southern states. These were anti-fascist militias. And in addition to that, there were the the Indians, the, the Native Americans here, the Lumbi tribe. At the same time, or shortly thereafter, when the Ku Klux Klan came to attack the black community in Monroe, and was, they were driven out, they were driven off. But then the Klan regrouped, and for some strange reason, went to attack the Lumbi Indians. And they already believed in armed self-defense, and they ran the ass out of there. <laughs> and so they got their ass kicked twice, and they come, you know, and at the time, this got worldwide publicity. Oh, no. At least the, the attack by the Indians, they, they tried to cover up that idea that black people had done uh, arms self-defense. In fact, uh, they tried to have an internal administrative procedure to remove the, the people who were running the Monroe, North Carolina, and they see people trying to remove them. So oh, you've engaged in violence. Oh, I haven't. I've engaged in armed self-defense. Somebody else engaged in violence. And they, they historically been doing it for a long time. Enjoying this podcast and want to support It's Going Down so we can continue to crank out more content? It's easy. Go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or the menu version on mobile that says support IGD and then you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. Without your support, IGD doesn't continue. So if you appreciate our work, please consider supporting us. Again, go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or on the menu version of mobile that says support IGD. And you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. You can also find the link in our Collectiva social media account and in the show notes of this podcast on itsgoingdown.org. And now, back to the show. But the reality is, in that period, and it, it blows my mind even today, how popular arms self-defense became. When Janina was talking about, there were parts of this talk tonight, but she was talking about the students at Cornell University and how they had fortified themselves and, you know, was protesting over racist conditions in that university. They were in there some, several days, you know, and when they came out to the world and won their agreements with cops and, and everything and the city officials, they came out of there armed to the teeth, students armed to the teeth. And there's a famous picture of that. And that picture will tell you in no uncertain terms that there were people in that period who were willing to pick up the guns. But the gun was a political tool and a political weapon that is the act of resistance to racism. Now, when you pick up the gun, is to shoot somebody that in your neighborhood that look like you or poor like you or and so forth, you know. But we're talking about a different kind of contradiction now. 
I will say that the government created this problem we're dealing with right now of not just guns in the neighborhood, they kind of violence against each other. You know, because there are always guns. There's always guns there. People had guns, but they wouldn't run up shoot each other. They wouldn't run up shoot your mother at a wedding or, or shoot uh, some kid in school. That wasn't happening. This is part of a program that was created in a lab somewhere. They said, well, we need to destabilize the black community and all these other communities of color and, and working class communities. We need to destabilize these communities. Because if we can destabilize them, we can stay in power. Just remember that it's all about staying in power and having control over the people. And I'm not going to tell you that from 1995 or whatever it is, uh, we can find out all the answers of the world and anarchism and black revolution. I'm not telling you that. Believe it, it's cool. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know. The government has created this problem for us, and they have done it um, to destabilize us and our ability to fight back. Just remember that. It's about fighting back, and they don't want you to be able to fight back. And even when you do fight back, they want to be able to sway you so that you stop fighting. I mean, I've heard people talk suddenly about the rebellion in 2020, the protest movement in 2020. It was the largest protest movement in the history of this country. I looked at that and I said, well, what came out of it? Now, it's true that people were politicized. They, their minds were open and so forth and so on. But in terms of destabilizing the government and winning winning significant victories. I'm saying like, what, what, what was accomplished? And I'm not saying this because I don't believe that people didn't fight valiantly and, and so forth, but if you were able to mobilize millions of people, if I get up and want to say, I want my millions of troops to stand on the White House, you can believe they want to they want to send some military up here, you know. Even though they got an army and all that stuff, they don't want to have a bloodbath in the street and expose the real danger of the gun. That's not what it's about. They haven't had that situation in this country, other than you know, the Civil War. And even then, they helped impose slavery, helped impose racism and uh, white supremacy in the South. Now, I think that uh, it's important. <clears throat> understand the motivations of those in power, but the motivations of those on the ground. I always say to people, look, and this is going to reinforce what I'm saying, we speak truth to power, but we have to speak, speak truth to the people as well, so that they can be the ones speaking truth to power. Now, does that sound like some circle of crazy shit? It's just meant to be a way of deciphering what to do. What to do. What's your objective? What's your objective? What is it? You always have, have to ask yourself, ask yourself that. I'm 75 years old. I forget. 
to do older than that. You should know better than that. Well, but um, it's just important to know the objectives of what you're doing. These are real simple things, but they they were told to me, they were taught to me, and you know, and also the things I learned in the streets. But you can build a new movement in the spirit. I get people telling me just this week, we can't build the black anarchist movement. Why everybody's against us? We don't believe in this, that, and the other. That's what we have to talk to each other, to educate each other, to realize what our objectives are, and to bring about a united front. What the hell are you talking about, a united front? A united, see, first of all, no one organization, even the Black Panther Party is powerful as it was in the 60s. No one organization, this was taught, no one organization can lead the revolution, lead it, you know, whatever you want to call it. It has to be a united front of forces. And with the united front, it's possible to go past the enemy opposition. Even in a country like this, I mean, here's the, the thing about this country is, it's the most powerful country still in the world. But they know they were having their asses handed to them in 1968. Because in 1968, a worldwide youth movement broke out all, all over. And that movement, which was against the war, against capitalism, all these things, all the issues of the popular of the day, Black Panther Party was right there as instrumental and being a part of it. And they came extremely close to losing this country forever, the capitalists, I mean. And uh, even people, and John talks about this like in Chicago as an example, even so called rednecks in, Ch in Chicago that have been dumped there, poor whites have been dumped there in Chicago, united with the Black Panther Party. And they were going to take over the city of Chicago, among other forces, all the forces in the community, all the revolutionary forces and, and activists. So they were organizing to take over the city. You hear this thing about the Rainbow Coalition, Jesse Jackson, behind it, I mean, Jesse Jackson, C-O-N, it, um, stolen it. But it was actually created by Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party. And, uh, so people said, damn, how, how they got out, you know, daily, who's the mayor, I said, how they got all these rednecks out here with, the, with these black folks and, and Puerto Ricans and everybody, else? what the hell, they're coming for, coming for our blood, you know. And that was when the decision was made that we had to take this brother out, take him out of that. Take him out. And we had to take him out. Because he's, he's uniting forces that we have used to fight each other in the working place. We can't have that. We'll lose everything. So just remember that. As those people, there's more you can read about it, whatever, I guess. I don't know. But the point is, 
Just remember that. That it's possible. It is they know it's possible to have a revolution in this country. And that people just need to have their mind together and their ability to talk to people and organize their own communities. So, I know you would be weird, right? They don't want to keep Have you lost it? I talked to you. I talked to you enough to know that you haven't lost it and that you do this all the time. <laughs> no, I think that, that was an amazing uh, point to end on, and I, I really want to say, can we just give them one more round? This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.